0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Fusionism is in part the notion that libertarian ideas and conservative ideas needn't be at odds, but getting along might require a clearer understanding of our private and public spheres. Stephanie Slade at Reason Magazine argues that our understanding of fusionism has changed and in a sense degraded over time. She argues that fusionism, even without the existential threat of communism, has important lessons for us about tolerance and the proper role of government today. I have to admit that I did not know what fusionism was before about the middle of 2007, when I moved to Washington, D.C., and learned that there were people who uh, believed in this idea of an alliance, if you will— between conservatives and and libertarians, but before we get too much into the future of fusionism, let's talk about its past. What was fusionism initially, and how has it come to be misunderstood?
1: Yeah, I think it's actually pretty widely misunderstood, even among people who are sort of within the D.C. conservative libertarian activist um, public intellectual bubble. Uh, the story that you often hear here told is one in which fusionism emerged as an alliance between libertarians and sort of religious traditionalists during the Cold War, because the Soviet Union was this, this existential threat, and it was both anti-capitalist and atheistic, and sort of you know militantly so. And so you had this, this common foe that brought, again, libertarians and religious traditionalists together into one tent, and they, they uh, you know, they allied with each other and they, over the course of decades, eventually successfully helped to defeat the, th- the threat of communism. But that in, and again, this is the sort of conventional wisdom, the story you often hear. In the decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, people will say, well, the, the glue that held the fusionist coalition together has gone away. And so now you're seeing a fraying or a pulling apart and a sort of antagonistic relationship developing between conservatives or traditionalists. And libertarians, and I don't, I don't deny or doubt that there is this sort of tension or antagonism that has, especially in the last few years, um, emerged. But I actually would push back against that story of of what fusionism means and what it was um, from the beginning, because if you actually go back and you sort of read the the most uh, prominent fusionist writers from the Cold War era, people like Frank Meyer at National Review. Um, what you find is that there was this agreement that that uh, traditionalism, religious traditionalism and libertarianism do not need to be at odds with each other at all. They don't need to be two separate camps. You can be one person who believes in both those things as long as you keep these two sets of values separate. And you believe and you say that the, the sort of realm of government and public policy exists to protect individual liberty. That's the libertarian component. And in our in, our, in the private sphere, in our private lives, and in, in, in essentially the, the sort of vast space outside of government policy that exists in order for us to, to be able to pursue the higher things, including individual virtue.
0: The notion that uh, I hear from some conservatives, I think more recently, is uh, they conflate libertarians with libertines and have this idea in their heads that libertarianism, by its very nature, endorses uh, fully, uh, reprobate behavior.
1: This is why I think the word fusionism actually is quite valuable to have in our vocabulary, because it's certainly the case that there are libertarians who believe that, who who don't just say that you know we want a, a government that exists to protect individual liberty, but who might go farther, uh, further than that and say. Um, And also, we celebrate all lifestyle choices equally, and we don't believe that there, you know, we sort of don't have this sort of this um, traditionalist conception of virtue and that sort of thing. But many libertarians do fall into that camp, but I don't deny it. I work with I work alongside some of them.
0: I mean, we should note that your article appears uh, in an issue of Reason Magazine with not one, not two, but three separate articles about hallucinogenic mushrooms. Right.
1: Well, it's a big deal. Those mushrooms have now been legalized for the first time in parts of the United States. So we wanted to mark that occasion. Um, but that's sort of what I'm getting at, is that within the libertarian big tent, um, you do have some people who disagree about the importance of traditional um, religious values and, and virtue in this sort of traditional sense. Um, we don't all agree. And so it's helpful to be able to say, that there is one of the ways to be a libertarian is to be a sort of fusionist libertarian. And that's what I am um, as a, you know, practicing Catholic. Um, I I believe that virtue is really important and virtue in not the sort of modern leftist um, woke sense, but in the sort of classical Judeo-Christian sense. Um, and, and yet I can still be a libertarian because I, I feel very strongly and I'm very insistent on the fact that We must pursue that on our own and not try to impose it upon other people using the coercive arm of the state.
0: So uh, this new thing, which I'm hesitant to say that it's new, this idea of sort of a post-liberal conservatism, these nationalist conservatives have this idea that uh, or it, it seems that they put liberty and virtue as competing. Uh, that they they are not compliments in any substantial way. Uh, How big of an idea was that in, say, the 1980s when Bill Bennett was holding sway in the White House and uh, you had a lot of sort of the moral majority uh, Republicans running things?
1: You're right. This isn't new. And even going back to uh, the 50s and 60s in the pages of National Review magazine, you had Frank Meyer, the sort of who's considered the godfather of fusionism. He was the, the literary editor of National Review. And you had L. Brent Bozell, who was William F. Buckley's brother-in-law, debating in the pages of National Review about whether fusionism was even coherent. And Frank Meyer said yes, and he laid it out. And Brent Bozell said, no, we're not. The government doesn't just exist to protect individual liberty. The government exists to make us a moral people and to to promote and um, you know protect And um, and again, not just carve out space so that people can be moral, but also to like teach and train us to be moral. Um, And so they were debating. Even go back even further than that, you had Russell Clark pushing something of more like uh, what we would consider today to be a post-liberal conservative position. But what I would say is that for for decades, um, for for decades going back at least to the the launching of National Review in the fifties. That this William F. Buckley, Frank Meyer fusionist position that really did believe in limited government, uh, minimal government and, and sort of the virtue component being reserved to the private sphere was the, the preeminent or the predominant um, understanding of what it meant to be a conservative in America. Not, not the European style conservatism, but this uniquely American style conservatism was by its very nature fusionist. Um, and that, I think, is is a thing that we have seen, that consensus, that that's what it means to be an American conservative, has be- begun to break down in the last few years, especially, you know, exacerbated by the election of Donald Trump in 2016. So it's clearly not that type of conservative.
0: It, it's odd that we saw uh, a rise of sort of a post-liberal conservatism that is at least among some intellectuals, not necessarily in in the broad public, but a conservatism that... Uh, wants to use a more muscular conservatism, as as uh, it's described in, in your piece, uh, at the same time you have a president who breaks all norms of what Republicans traditionally held out as good people uh, that we want in political office.
1: Yeah, one of the great ironies of the Trump era has been this the, the cognitive dissonance of the types of people who supported Donald Trump being disproportionately those who claim to believe that, you know, traditional values and, and religion, um, were important. Um, but I actually think there's, this kind of gets to this new idea of, um, of barstool conservatism that has become all the rage in the last couple of weeks. Um, it, there is, I think some truth to the, um, to the idea that the thing that actually held the Trump coalition together far, far more than any kind of coherent economic policy agenda um, was a sense of people like me are under attack. Um, people who believe what I believe are under attack, people who look like I look. Um, and and this is, this is sort of the backlash, I think, to runaway political correctness and to Obama era government assaults perceived, but I think correctly perceived as government assaults on uh, religious liberty. So you have the government saying, you know, Catholic nuns have to pay for birth control and you have the government, you know, sort of handing down policy that caused uh, uh, implementing or imposing uh, what's what's seen as sort of anti-American or, um, you know, there's no patriotism in our school curriculums. And there's there's this is this is a, a problem that causes a vast swath of Americans to feel like they and the things that they believe in value are being are, are under assault, and that that actually far more than a desire to like see um, trade shut down or you know more tariffs imposed is what motivated the Trump coalition. I, I think that I, I've kind of been saying that for a while, but I, I think we're with more and more evidence over time that that's true. And, and in fact, just last week, the Ethics and Public Policy Center put out a, a new poll. It took just of Trump. Trump voters, 2020 Trump voters. And I was amazed. I mean, I was really, I thought it was very interesting that there was only like 35% of them said, and these are Trump people who actually voted for Trump in 2020. Said America should reduce its trade with foreign, um, foreign countries, for example. But like 92 percent of them said it's a huge problem that the mainstream media is basically an arm of the Democratic Party. So, so you can kind of see that the, that the the idea that the Trump coalition was primarily motivated by economic policy, I think, was is not. There's not much evidence actually that that's true.
0: So it's owning libs.
1: <sighs> I mean. That is definitely a big part of it. I, it is. And and I'm. it's easy to be dismissive of that. And I often am frustrated by the way, you know, cry more libs or, you know, you liberal snowflakes is, are bandied about online. But the truth is these people are, they are, it is a backlash. They are reacting to a real phenomenon, which is that these, there really were these policies and this sort of shift in the culture that caused a lot of people to feel like, but why, how, when did I become the enemy in America?
0: So uh, going forward, then, um, to the extent that national conservatism sticks around, and I I don't know how you feel about that. I I think it's probably an even money proposition whether or not it uh, persists as uh, or even arrives in a sense as a uh, political force to be reckoned with. Uh, What do you think the future of fusionism is? Is is there a need to reestablish this understanding between public and private spheres about what government ought to do and uh, are mainstream conservatives or more broadly Republicans actually amenable to that.
1: You're right. I I totally agree that it's an open question that this is a debate and a sort of battle that's going to be waged in real time, you know, going forward. Um, And I don't have a strong, although the, the, The title of the article that we're discussing is like, is there a future for fusionism? Everybody keeps asking me, so what's your answer? Is there a future for fusionism? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's an open question. I really hope there is. I think that the fusionist um, understanding of, again, of what sort of conservatism in America has been all along, um, it's the best possible way forward for the Republican Party and the conservative movement. I I really hope that the fusionists are successful and that the economic nationalists, the sort of big government conservative populists are not successful. But there is a lot of sort of power There's like a lot of money and a lot of attention currently being um, lining up behind these new these these sort of new think tanks and magazines. And you have the Orrin Cass, who was interestingly previously Mitt Romney's economic advisor, who has now started a, a group called American Compass that is pushing explicitly pushing not just economic nationalism, but industrial policy. In his own words, he says, we are in favor of industrial policy. That is to say, we want the federal government spending money to try to prop up American industry. In the face of foreign competition, um, and he's getting a lot of attention, including a profile in you know New York Times magazine last year. So I'm not saying for sure that the fusionists are going to win. I'm just saying that I think that this is that this is not over in the way that some people who said Trump's victory in 2016 proved that um, libertarianism is dead and fusionism is over forever. I don't think that's, I think that's going too far.
0: There is one thing that makes me think that uh, this national conservatism is going to go away, which is that every time I've seen an interview or read somebody pushing back uh, in real time against uh, one of these folks who believes in this more muscular uh, big government for conservative ends uh, idea, it seems that they're not super clear on how policymaking making really works. I don't. I don't mean to generalize too much, but every time I've seen those kinds of discussions fold uh, unfold, it, it strikes me that maybe they don't really get how DC works.
1: Yeah, that may be true. Um, I was just having a conversation with a friend about um, Section Two Hundred and Thirty, this tech, tech regulation that many of these post-liberal, na- you know, economic nationalist conservatives. They they hate Section 230 because they say um, it gives technology platforms the right to downplay or censor or disadvantage conservative speech. But the truth is, I think, and, and this is the point I made to my friend, that uh, Section 230 is, is the law that basically says that a platform like Twitter or Facebook is not liable for user-generated speech. If, if somebody commits a crime, you know, commits a libel, uh and post it on Twitter. Twitter isn't the one that's liable. The the user who posted the speech is liable. And if they did get rid of Section 230, and they got rid of that protection, that liability protection, um, the result would be for these for these social media platforms to just go away. And that's not going to happen, of course. What's going to happen is you're going to see crony capitalist you know, meeting of the minds where the, the big tech owners, the, the big tech platforms partner with lawmakers in order to write regulations that protect incumbent businesses at the expense of new businesses. It, um, and so that that is not the, that is not at all with people who say section 230 is evil we need to we need you know we need to get rid of section 230 they're not talking about what's actually going to happen if they start regulating this which is not they're, they're not, not going to eliminate section 230 and therefore shut down all of these uh, all of these platforms you're going to end up with more crony capitalism and less competition in the tech sector that, as opposed to more competition
0: what is the thing that makes you think that fusionism is going to come back aside from your own study of it itself
1: like i said i'm not necessarily betting my life savings on on the fusionist winning i'm 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 hopeful i'm perhaps more bullish i think than some about this um for a few for a few reasons one is that i actually really do believe um that again what it means to be um a conservative in the united states of america is very different from what it means to be a conservative um in other parts of the world and it there there's a there are some famous quotes um i think it was hg wells who said something like he, he wrote like uh, the thing about americans is that they're all liberals the conservatives are liberals and the the progressives are progressives are liberals right because what he meant was in america we care so much about individual liberty even the most conservative americans are we uh, it's our it's our patrimony it's what it's what the country was founded on is breaking away and and um breaking away from from authority and monarchy and um establishing self-government and that sort of thing and so it infuses our politics whether you're left right or center that that liberalism that tolerance that ability to um to hold multiple ideas in your mind at one time um, and not necessarily want to to shoot or imprison anybody who disagrees with you is a very American, you know, it's a very American um, ethos or mindset. And so that makes me think that it would be harder to kill, you know, than than some of these post-liberal conservatives maybe are betting on.
0: Stephanie Slade is managing editor at Reason Magazine. Subscribe to the Cater Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.